Hello, I'm Chris Slowly, the editor of CityWire Selector. I'm joined today by Jeremy Grantham, the co-founder of GMO and one of the most notable investors in the world today. Not too grand an opening, Jeremy, I hope. <laughs> Pretty grand. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. You joined at an interesting time because one thing I was hoping to get into is the current market dynamics. And we've seen a, a significant shift from growth to value. How much have you been focusing on that and how meaningful a shift is it for you compared to previous market cycles? I think it's really quite sustainable. In the larger scheme of things, when the market is very expensive, growth tends to prosper. When the market is very cheap, uh, value tends to prosper. And you can check that through the 70s and so on, all the way up until the 21st century, really, which has been uh, almost purely growth until quite recently. Starting about the middle of last year, we began to move back to value. We've had a, a big move, maybe close to 35 points. Um, that feels like it should be everything, but it, it has, hasn't actually covered half the ground. These cycles between growth and value, which there have been at least three each way in my life, uh, can be very, very big indeed, 80, 90 points, 120 in one case. Uh, a value uh, beat growth by 120 points from uh, 1982 um, for the next several years. And I must say it was glorious being, being a value manager. All the growth managers were hiding under the table. Anyway, it, it's moved a third of the way, perhaps even 40% of the way. It has a lot of momentum. And, and it still is much cheaper. Value is still much cheaper than it usually is against growth. You've answered one of the follow-up questions I was going to do there, but just to expand upon it, how does it compare to previous cycles where we've seen value as the market leader? Are there lessons from those times that you can take into this market or were you always, always in a position where you were going to take advantage of this? It's, um, this is the third big move of my investment career. And the other two were over twice in uh, 2000 and uh, over three times this move in uh, 1982 or 74, 82, a continuous move in favor of uh, value. So they're very long, multi-year and they move much further than you might suspect. And usually they overcorrect. So you end up with, uh, if you will, value overpriced and growth cheap before this thing is finished. One of my colleagues was speaking to someone recently and they said that technology could be moving into sort of value territory. Do you agree with that? Do you think technology will ever be in the value, value bucket, so to speak? Yeah, for 20 years or longer, I've been a firm adherent to the idea that uh, a value measure should be very broad. And um, a, a dividend discount model that takes into account the quality, takes into account the future growth, uh, profitability, everything. Uh, in other words, are you cheap for what you are? Our original model back in the 90s had Microsoft in the cheapest 10% by value. And uh, that's the way it should work. So everything can be cheap. And, and the value growth should actually be cheap, expensive. That is the real parameter. Growth is not really aligned with value. How does I know you've always been a strong proponent of clean and green technology. How does your value views, how do they feed into the energy sector or the clean energy sector? Because that is seen as a sort of growth area. But using the example you've just given there, if everything can be treated as value, is there still value in the clean energy sector? 
Well, GMO's climate change fund has, sells at about a one third discount from the market's PE. So yes, there are very expensive green stocks and they had quite a few that were leading the bubble upwards and quite a few of those have led the bubble breaking downwards. And um, that, that's the way it always is. But within that green uh, universe, which is very wide and diverse, there are plenty of opportunities to buy value stuff. Looking at where we are currently in the market, um, coming into January 2020, you talked about the idea of there being super bubble territory. And I know part of that was driven by NFTs, cryptos, meme stocks. Have we moved away from the super bubble territory? Are we still on that course? And what does it mean for investors? I, I think there's actually quite an insight to be had to recognize that the super bubbles are a separate species. If you average in every bull market, uh, what you get is a, a story diluted by a dozen irrelevant data points. It, it simply dilutes the whole point. The, the great bubbles are ones that have plenty of crazy behavior that sell way at the top of the range of history. And, uh, and they have this unique feature at the end that there's a divergence at the end of the uh, blue chips going up and the leading <clears throat> speculative stocks going down. That only happens in 1929, in 1972, in 2000, and last year. The only times in history that you've had a decent move upwards in the blue chip S&P and a substantial move downwards in the, in the speculative stocks that had previously led the charge upwards. It is very strange, unique to the super bubbles, and we have just had it. And that's what gave me so much confidence last year that we had entered the zone. On that point, I think one thing that really stood out for me as well is, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said that investors need to rid themselves of FOMO. How much is FOMO also a factor within super bubbles and driving that sort of market dimension? Completely. It, they, they are the most extreme points of investor psychology, where you buy into the idea that markets only go up and probably this was the most extreme case. The, the most extreme faith that, that stock markets only go up and any setbacks are temporary and inconsequential, which of course just ain't so. Uh, setbacks are multi-years, incredibly painful, and almost everybody in the FOMO category would not stand the pain and will check out. Is there a huge psychological shift then that needs to happen in markets or is this just the nature of markets? Will we cyclically, because you mentioned there 1929, 1972, 2000, generation upon generation, will we constantly fall into these cycles? Is that just the nature of the market? I think humans are vulnerable to these waves of excessive optimism. I think in, in a perfect world, well-led, with a, with a sensible Fed and good signals being put out, you might be able to go for the best part of, of a couple of generations without having a Super Bowl. But in a world where rates are low, speculation is encouraged, asset prices are rising because the rates are coming down, then you're going to have more than your fair share of these crazy moments where everybody believes the Fed is behind them and they can't lose. And that was classically 
uh, what last year and the year before represented. Looking at some longer term trends, Jeremy, when I started at CityWire around a decade ago, I remember reading one of your research notes and it was talking about sort of Malthusian projections, the idea of safeguarding resources. And at that time, I mean, it was slightly left of field. It wasn't mainstream thinking. And in that decade, we've seen a huge amount of shift towards that becoming more common in the way that people interpret the market. Do you think enough people are now up to speed with your concerns or do you think much more work needs to be done? I think the Homo sapiens specializes in wishful thinking. We do it extremely well. You know, I started on climate change over 20 years ago. And by 10 or 12 years ago, I was saying, this is going to dominate the portfolios out into the distant future. No one, they rolled their eyes. They just didn't want to listen. And uh, COVID was another wonderful example where people in Britain thought they were doing wonderfully well when they were about the worst in the world. And people in Massachusetts the mayor and the governor, uh, the mayor of Boston, governor of Massachusetts, were bragging about how well we were doing when Massachusetts, if had it been a separate country, would have been the worst in the world, even worse than Britain. So, I mean, our ability to fool ourselves and have the press, if free press go along with us, has been, has been amazing. And in the market, of course, it's a wonderful opportunity to engage in wishful thinking. So if you have wonderful economy, plenty of money available, plenty of encouragement from the Fed, you are likely to have a bubble. And if you uh, keep it going for long enough, you may be lucky enough or unlucky enough to end up with a super bubble, which is two and a half to three sigma uh, statistical measure away from trend. And by the way, after this first leg down, if you take out profit margins for a second and look at price to sales, we are down to the highest point ever reached at the top of 2000. There is no time that a price to sales ratio has been higher than this, uh, except for the last couple of years. That's it. And the same applies to uh, Warren Buffett's measure, uh, multiple of GDP, so total market value uh, as a multiple of total GDP. It's the highest it's ever been it's only fallen back to the very peak of 2000, which was at the time the greatest outlier in American history. So we are unbelievably expensive on a broad-based value measure. One of the reasons is our profit margins have been running so high. And what we've, what we've suffered from on the first leg down is a markdown in PE, which always happens when inflation picks up. The second leg down is when you mark down profit margins. And almost everybody, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, the works, they realize that now uh, profit margins are in the crosshairs and they, they will get hurt very badly by a combination of resource shortages, the war, COVID uh, problems and, and uh, shortage of labor beginning to build up, inflationary, stagflationary forces, um, all, all bearing down on profit margins, which start at the peak. They can decline a lot and will. Well, I suppose that, I mean, you have answers to an extent, but just to have it as a, a singular point then, what should you be doing and what should you not be doing in this market? You should not be taking any extra risk. That's the easy part. Uh, because in the end, a drawn out bear market punishes risk taking. So you should be deep into your risk avoidance uh, dugout. 
and how you deal with that is is kind of up to up to people depending on their skill sets what they're familiar with what they know resources in the long run are good as a defensive measure against inflation and uh, and troubles it will have a down leg as we go into a recession of course we will go into a recession and that will that will put a big pause on on commodities but in, in general we are entering an inflationary era and they will beat the market and they they might and probably will make make absolute money uh, climate change will have its ups and downs also but at least it is beginning to have the backing of governments of tax of incentives the world is beginning to realize it has to decarbonize the system and that is huge trillions of dollars that will be moving behind climate change so for a multi-year investment climate looks much better than average my favorite though uh, with the Grantham Foundation's money is a fund we have at, at GMO that does the value spread. We, uh, we short expensive stocks, we buy cheap stocks. It's, it's up 19% this year, had an excellent year last year, and I think is, as I said, has, has not even covered halfway yet. Can I pick up on one point with, which is slightly removed from that, Jeremy, where we've looked at other things within the market, things that you've talked about previously, and one, I mean, I say this here, we're in the UK where we're going through uh, a, a big bit of industrial action, there's union strikes and overpay, and, and previously you talked about there being a disconnect between how much CEOs perhaps in the financial industry are paid compared to other people. Has that been addressed in any way, or do you think there are still huge challenges like that that also feed into a general sense of unrest or distrust amongst the general populace? Yes, the biggest uh, correlation in that field is between uh, the Gini ratio, a measure of inequality across income groups, and the social contract. The social contract is simply how much you trust your neighbors. Are you willing to give up anything for the benefit of society? Unequal societies score very low on the social contract. Equal societies like Denmark, Scandinavian countries in general, Japan, score very well. And unfortunately, the US and the UK have spent the last 20 years becoming much more unequal. And the US is now fighting it out with Brazil and Mexico, et cetera, for most extreme inequality. Their social contract here in the US is in, is in tatters. Nobody trusts anybody. Nobody trusts the government. And this, this is bad for the economy. If you, as Henry Ford might have said, if I don't pay my workers a decent wage, how are they going to buy one of my cheap cars? And, and that's it. We have become so lopsided and we have borne down so hard in the US on the average worker since the mid 70s, for heaven's sake, hardly any gain in an hour's work in real terms. Um, eventually, they're a weak link in the economy and that is beginning to show up. And, and the pendulum politically, is beginning to swing uh, towards the worker. I think sensible people are realizing that we've gone too far. We have to be a little more egalitarian for five or 10 years here. Well, that was going to be my point is, is where does it end? Where do we end up with? And we have seen, I mean, in the last month, we've seen Colombia uh, move quite far to the left. We've seen even more bifurcated 
policies in France, for example, where it was an independent against very right-leaning. Do you think populist politics is going to continue to be able to function in that environment? And is that also a worry for economics? Well, I don't want to get involved in Colombia. I'm much more concerned with the US and the UK. Of course. But I, 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 do, I do think there's plenty of room in, in our two countries for uh, a, a move towards more equality through the tax structure, through incentives, through education, retraining, any number of ways. And basically, they are all healthy for the economy. The egalitarian period in America, which was after World War II for 25 years, that was the golden era. Productivity was much higher. Tax rates were much higher uh, on, on the rich. But productivity and the GDP grew much faster back in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And 70s even. I'd realise, Jeremy, we've moved around quite a lot in this conversation, so apologies because we've jumped from topic to topic to topic. But one final thing that I was keen to ask you about, and it is a bit more forward-looking, is we have seen a rise of what we'd consider alternative investments across a number of asset managers, what we'd consider traditional asset managers. Is there any concern that, and this I suppose speaks to your point about don't overreach, don't go into risk, of people being drawn into areas that perhaps they shouldn't be in? Or do you think that move to alternatives is going at the right speed? And are you investing in anything you'd consider an alternative at the moment? I want to divide uh, alternatives between classic private equity, buyouts, etc., and venture capital. Uh, private equities is shuffling the same paper that institutional investment managers do. It adds very little value and leverages the system up. It was a license to steal as long as rates were coming down. And by the last few years where debt after inflation was practically free, how could you not make money buying a company, leveraging it with free debt and, uh, and holding it or reselling it? It didn't really matter. Uh, and so the, the, the business boomed and has become a very big chunk, like a quarter of the entire market cap. And that is in, of course, life-threatening challenge here from rates. If, if rates start to rise and irregularly go halfway back to the levels of the 20th century, and then of course, the attractiveness of, pri uh, of private equity uh, disintegrates. Venture capital is a bit different. Venture capital are the, where the new ideas, the innovations, and we need innovation like MAD to, to green the economy, to get around the bottlenecks, just take, for example, lithium, cobalt, nickel, copper, the things you need to green the system. They, they are not available in anything like the quantities that we need. And therefore you are going to have to redesign batteries, redesign storage systems, redesign electric vehicles. You're going to have to have a beehive of activity on innovation to, to, to design your way around these bottlenecks. So venture capital, will be our saving grace. And, and America does it very well indeed. It's the best part of American capitalism, which otherwise is monopolistic, fat, happy, and not, and not that good. Well, Jeremy, I think on that note, uh, it, there is some promise in there. There's a lot of questions as well, but thank you very much for joining me today. No, you're entirely welcome. <laughs>